Thanks, John. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible. We're in Isaiah, and we are going to study the Scriptures together. Uh, this series is called Christmas Will Come. Christmas Will Come. We're in the season where our days are getting shorter. Um, they're getting colder. Not really this week, but typically getting colder. Life is getting scarier, but the promise is that Christmas will come. Christ will come. And we're setting aside this time, these four weeks, to look at the prophecies of uh, Isaiah. Uh, so Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Christ came that this was going to happen. Uh, and so that's what we're seeing in this uh, series. Uh, each week we're going to look at a different theme. Hope will come. Love will come. Joy will come. Peace will come. This week we're focusing on the second one, love Will come. So we'll be in Isaiah 52 and 53, mostly chapter 53. Um, it can be found on page 613 in the Black Bibles under your chairs if you want to follow along there. Isaiah is basically right in the middle of the Bible. If you just crack it open, it's page 613. Um, Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Um, so today we're going to talk about love. Before we get started, I want to share something with you. I hope this isn't too personal, but I'm very, very attracted to my wife. I just wanted to get that off my chest. I wanted to share that with you. I find her very attractive. I think she's very beautiful, and I'm really embarrassing her right now. Um, when she walks in a room, I always notice she lights up the room for me. Very attracted to her. But that's a different thing than love. Uh, love is a different thing, right? Love is, is when I take care of her when she's sick. Um, love is when I apologize when I've been a jerk, Love is when I forgive her on those very rare occasions when she needs forgiveness, right? Love is putting in 30 years of faithfulness and showing up and caring and providing, right? That's love. And that's a different thing than attraction. It's great when they go together. That's an awesome gift. I'm thankful for that. But they're two different things. And we just have to remember in our culture, we mix them up all the time. Our culture says that love is attraction and attraction is love, but they're different things, they really, really are. Attraction's great. Attraction's wonderful. Uh, but love is something different. Here's my definition of love. What is love? Love is costly action for the good of another. That's what love is. Biblically, love is something that is done. It's not just something that is felt. It's great when it's felt too. But love is something that is done. It's costly action for the good of another. And to say it another way, what we see in the book of Isaiah, human sin is not attractive, and yet God loves us anyway. God loves us anyway. That's what this text is about. Isaiah, in context, is a book about much judgment on human sin. Um, the Assyrian Empire rolling in, scattering and exiling God's people, judgment. It's going to talk a lot also about the later judgment that's going to come when the Babylonian Empire comes in and judges God's people. And then the Persian Empire comes in. It's just bang, 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 judgment, judgment, judgment. And yet here, towards the end of the book of Isaiah, in these last few chapters, he ends with this great hope of the love of God. That's what we're going to see in this text, the love of God. God promises his love. Now, our text is going to be chapter 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. That's the whole text we're going to look at this morning. It's basically chapter 53 with a few verses from previous chapter. So basically chapter 53. But I want to zero in on the middle of this. And so uh, in Bible study, there's a term called chiasm. 
It's not really that important that you know what this term is, but it's helpful to know that this pattern shows up a lot in Scripture. So chiasm comes from uh, the Greek word chi, which is the X. And so the idea is that you've got this crossing point in the middle with a bunch of verses, and that middle is actually the most important, right? And so this pattern comes up a lot in Scripture where you'll see a paragraph, you'll see some poetry, and it'll start off with a theme, and it'll end with a theme, and then it'll have a secondary theme, and it'll uh, come to the end with the secondary theme, but right in the middle is the most important part. So I want to just start us off by reading the, the, the center of the chiasm. The most important part is chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. It's going to sound very familiar because we sang some of this this morning, okay? So chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Christ. We believe this is the word of God. We study the scripture each week because it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We want to listen to him. We want to hear what he has to say. Uh, We need his spirit to be good listeners. So I'm going to pray that his spirit would be here with us to help us to hear, to spiritually renew us. Let's pray. God, we need you. We pray that your spirit would show up and change us. Help us to have a sense of awe at who you are, that you, God, would love us despite our sin. We pray that we'd be changed by it. We pray that your spirit would glorify you in these words that we study this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is love. Love will come. And at Christmas time, we're celebrating uh, like the Israelites, looking forward, love will come. So for us, it's a looking back and a looking forward. We look back to that first Christmas and say, love came for us. I mean, that's what assures us now that love will come back for us again in the end and make all things right. Love will come. Isaiah 52 and 53 teaches this as it unfolds uh, in three different layers. Number one, we're going to see the impossibility of God's love. We have to wrestle with that, the impossibility of God's love. It's an enigma or a puzzle, the impossibility of God's love. Secondly, we'll see the mechanics of God's love. How does this actually fit together and work? The mechanics of God's love. How can he do this impossible thing? He's going to tell us the mechanics of God's love. And then finally, we'll see the victory of God's love, the victory of God's love. It's not just nice intentions, but it's something that changes everything. Changes us, changes the world, the victory of God's love. So number one, let's look at the impossibility of God's love. We have to face the impossibility of it. As I said, a lot of scholars call this an enigma, a puzzle. Um, There are these things that don't seem to fit together. We're going to see this in these first few verses. We're going to back up, like I said, just looking at the last three verses of chapter 52 because they feed into chapter 53. So it'll be Isaiah 52, verses 13, 14, and 15. So this enigma, this puzzle, as Jesus said in Luke, we just studied, salvation for man is impossible. It's impossible. We have to reckon with that. There's this big obstacle that needs to be 
overcome. The question again and again of the Old Testament, the mystery, the puzzle, is how can God and man live together in love? How is that possible? We continue to blow it. We continue to sin. So this is going to open up that puzzle for us. Chapter 52, verses 13, 14, and 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, this is just what we would expect for a servant of God, that he would be high and exalted and lifted up. Verse 14, it's going to turn. As many were astonished at you, and remember, who's the you? He's talking to Israel, who sinned, and they were exiled, and they've been beat up, and they've been through war. They've been through hell. So he's going to say, now, as many as were astonished At you, in your exile, also his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's saying, now like you, he also was beat up. He was high and lifted up. He was exalted and yet, like you, he's been marred. He's been beat up. He's been exiled. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. What does that mean? Sprinkle, weird word to us. It's a highly technical word from the Old Testament, right? They would purify things with the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And so sprinkle is just shorthand for purify. He's saying, okay, this guy's high and lifted. My servant is high and exalted. He's high and lifted up. And yet he's marred beyond human recognition and in, somehow in that impossibility, these two things that don't make sense, that somehow go together, this paradox, this puzzle, in that way, all the nations are going to be purified. And the kings of the world are going to shut their mouths. Now, it's hard to tell exactly what the poet here means by the kings shutting their mouths, but I think the most obvious meaning in the context of, of great empires is that the people that have all the answers don't have the answers anymore. Now, this servant is the one with the answer. This servant who's high and lifted up and yet is marred behind, uh, beyond human recognition. It goes on and says, uh, second half of 15, for that which has not been told them, they see. So these kings that have all the answers, they don't have answers anymore. And it says, that which has not been told them, they now see. And that which they have not heard, they now understand. And so they're just this, this paradox, this, this puzzle, right? I've never heard this truth, and now all of a sudden I've heard it. I've never seen this before, and now all of a sudden I understand it. Now I'm purified. Then the nations have been sprinkled. The sin has been taken away, whereas it couldn't be taken away before. And where does all this come from? It comes from this crazy paradox, this impossible paradox of someone both being high and lifted up and exalted, and at the same time marred and crushed beyond human recognition. We have to recognize that we're, we're being set up here with, man, we got a lot of stuff that doesn't seem to go together. There's impossibility, there's puzzle, there's enigma, there's this ache here in the text. The question is, how can God's unconditional promises of love exist next to his righteous judgment of evil? God is both righteous in his judgment on evil and he's also continuing to make these unconditional promises of love, these impossible promises of love. Another question is, how can a human son of Eve save humanity 
when we see again and again, that's just not working out for humanity. I mean, the whole story of the Bible is, is human leader after human leader failing to save humanity. Again and again and again, the message of the Bible seems to be only God can save humanity. And yet the very first promise in Genesis 3.15 is, is Eve, you're going to have a son someday that's going to save humanity. It's going to crush evil once and for all. How? That's impossible. And this is, this is forcing us to look ahead, to look forward to this impossible figure that is to come. He experienced the same uh, destruction, crushing judgment, marring that the Israelites had experienced. Again, it says uh, in verse 13, Behold my servant, he shall act wisely, he shall be hind lifted up, he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, just as people were astonished at you in your exile and in your judgment, in the same way his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He's experienced what they've experienced, right? So these are the exiles judged for their sin. He's saying, he's going to be like you. He's going to experience the same kind of pain and exile as you. I want to blow this up a little more and say, all of humanity locked out of paradise. He knows what that's like. He's experienced that same exile out of paradise that we've experienced. Psalm 137 describes the pain that the Israelites felt when they were exiled to Babylon. Psalm 137 says it this way, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There's a famous painting uh, by Gebhard Fugel called By the Waters of Babylon. I have a picture of it for you here. And it's just people wailing and crying, uh, weeping by the waters, by the rivers there in Babylon. And that's what's being described in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, in our exile, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. What is Zion? That's God's holy hill, God's place. We remembered our home, God's place, where God lives. And we cried because we're cast out. We're away from God's place. We're in exile. We're locked out of paradise. Psalm 137 goes on and says, On the willows there we hung up our lyres. It's a lyre. It's not L-I-A-R. It's lyre like a harp. It's a guitar, right? We hung up our guitars. We were done. No more singing. No more dancing. We were just crying. There, our captors required of us songs. Our tormentors required mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. They're saying, sing us one of those praise songs. Dance for us. Y'all are famous for praising God. Let's hear one of those songs. And they're like, all we could do is cry. All we could do is weep. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Psalm 34 answers. This is how. Psalm 34 answers it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So in the midst of exile, for these guys, the first audience, a very literal exile, right? War, their city's been burned down. For us, it it might feel a little more distant, but still we, we feel it. We are outside of paradise. We're exiled. We don't live in heaven. We live here. We live with divorce, bankruptcy, cancer, sin, pain, relational problems, we're in exile. We're outside of the place we want to be. And the situation just seems absolutely impossible. 
To say it another way, how can God love us when things are this bad? And here we're seeing the impossibility of God's love. Psalm 34 says, the Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted. The Lord is close to those who are struggling, who are hurting. The question is, do you feel it? Do you believe it? Do I believe it? That God is near to us, even in our exile. Even when everything seems so absolutely broken and torn to shreds, when we feel like we are marred beyond human recognition, do we believe that God loves us? This contrast of high and lifted up shows up in another place in Isaiah. Actually, it shows up in a couple of places. So this servant is high and lifted up, and yet he's marred beyond human semblance. So the other place it shows up is in Isaiah 6, the vision of God. God is high and lifted up, right? In Isaiah 57, we're in this closer section describing the servant of the Lord, and it says, the one who is high and lifted up, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isn't that amazing? This is the impossibility of God's love. God is simultaneously high and lifted up. He's exalted beyond us, beyond our comprehension. And he says, I also, I dwell with the lowly. I'm there with you when you're in exile. I'm there with you when you get that diagnosis. I'm there with you when you've lost everything. I have not abandoned you. And we need to feel the impossibility of God's love. This, this is real. This is not just some made-up idea. This is something real that he's prophesying 700 years before Christ came. Jesus was exiled with us and for us. And that's how God accomplishes this impossible salvation. The impossibility of God's love is seen in a God who enters into our exile. He, he, just, he just comes and he says, I'm going to fix this myself. Jesus was exiled for us. He was exiled with us. Not only that, he rose from the dead, conquered sin and death, passed through the heavens, Hebrews tells us. So he's accomplished everything we couldn't accomplish on our own. Hebrews 4 says, we don't have a high priest who's not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He's entered into the exile. He's entered into the terror. He's been marred beyond human recognition, just like us, and yet without sin. Let us then, here's what we do. Let us then draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. That's the answer. Recognize that he's, he's met us here in our exile. In this impossible situation, he's here. So we draw near to him. We run, we run to him. Don't hold back saying, God can't love me. Look at my circumstances. God can't love me. No, we say, I see Jesus. I see that God can love me because I see what Jesus did. He came into this exile with me. And then he conquered and rose from the dead. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run to him because he's, he's been where I am. And he's with me now. Draw near to him with confidence. Run to his throne of grace. Let's take the second Second idea is the mechanics of God's love, the, the mechanics of God's love. Here we'll see this unfolded in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 53. Um, so this is a longer section. I'm going to try to go faster in this section because uh, what I want to do is I just want to unpack that, that this section, the mechanics of God's love, like how it actually works, it just comes up again and again in the New Testament. So I'm going to kind of throw out these cross-references. I wouldn't say like 
I would say this. Don't try to write them all down because there will be so many and I'm going to go fast enough. I don't think you'll be able to write them down. But most of you will have them in your Bible footnotes. If you have a Bible, um, you can check the footnotes. If you don't have your own Bible, take one of those Bibles. We have extras, okay? Take one of those home. And there's all these little footnotes. They they say where these cross-references come up. Um, In the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system is going to foreshadow this, right? The mechanics of how God's love actually works. It's the sacrificial system of these pure sacrifices taking our place, substitution. That's what the sacrificial system's all about. It's telegraphing, foreshadowing. Hey, this is coming. This is coming. It's going to be perfect. Here it comes. And then Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 6, it's also foreshadowed, right? Isaiah himself sees God high and lifted up. And when you see God, you recognize, I'm a sinner. And so Isaiah confesses that. And the angel comes and brings the burning coal and atones, makes sacrifice, purifies Isaiah. So we see these mechanics of how this works, that God atones for us. He purifies us by his work. It's going to be unfolded here in chapter 53, verses 1 through 9. So 53, 1 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is quoted in John 12, 38. They're not listening to Jesus. And John quotes this and says, yeah, this is evidence of this. They're not hearing it. They're not believing it. It comes up again in Romans 10, 16 as well. It goes on in verse 2, Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. That should sound familiar. If you were here last week, we looked at Isaiah 11, and it talked about the shoot, the branch of Jesse, right? Coming up from this dead stump. So this is kind of echoing that language as well. But it also should ring a bell because Jesus came from Nazareth. And Neser, Nazareth, means stick or branch, right? I like to say Jesus grew up out in the sticks. That's what it means. And a lot of scholars, not everybody's agreed on this, but a lot of scholars think, oh, this is probably an echo of this, right? He was a branch. He was a stick, a shoot coming up from this stump. It goes on in verse 2, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, this is just a mega theme of the New Testament, right? The rejection of the Christ, the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish leaders. It comes up a lot, but I think where it's most explicitly detailed is in John 1. John 1, 10 and 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We go on in Isaiah 53, 4. It says, Surely, surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. That's the one we just sang. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Matthew eight seventeen says, this is what's going on when Jesus was healing people. He was carrying their griefs, their sorrows, their sicknesses. Now, as we studied the Gospel of Luke, we said, Jesus does both. He carries our physical sicknesses, but also that's really a symbol that he was pointing to something bigger. We need to have our sin cured by his sacrifice for us on the cross. And so we're reminded again and again, these themes just keep coming up in the New Testament. Verse 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That shows up in Romans 4.25. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Peter quotes this in 1 Peter 2.24. 
All we like sheep have gone astray, 1 Peter 2.25. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I heard the testimony of a Jewish man that said when he first heard the gospel, he was convinced that the Bible teacher was lying, that it was a trick Bible, that all these obvious prophecies of Jesus must be, it just, it's a big trick. He's like, that's not in my Bible. The guy was like, go, go read your Jewish Bible. It's in, it's in there. 700 years before Jesus came. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is my favorite summary of this section. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin become sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. It's a substitution. So we use the shorthand of just saying the cross, right? That's how we talk about this. Or we'll say the blood of Christ, right? Or when we take communion, we'll remember the the broken body and the spilled blood. There are different little shorthand ways we say this, but this is the message of the entire New Testament. How does this actually work? What are the mechanics by which a holy God would save a sinful people? How can Romans 3 be true that God is simultaneously just and the justifier of the wicked? What are the mechanics by which this works? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he took our place. He was the perfect sacrifice. If you trust in him, what happens is your sins are placed on his back. And not just that. It's not just that your account is wiped clean, but he fills your account, right? He gives you his very own righteousness. He lived the perfect life we were supposed to live. He, he died and he rose from the dead. So we have his resurrection power surging through us in this exile so that we can persevere, so we can keep trusting him and loving him and loving other people. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 53, 7, it says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is referenced in Matthew 26, 63, John 19, 9, and 1 Peter 2.25. Isaiah 53.8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This comes up in Matthew 27.57. He is the Lamb of God that has taken away our sin. As I said, it's foreshadowed in the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. It's literarily foreshadowed in Isaiah chapter 6, and it is just explicitly blasted at us here in Isaiah 53. 700 years before Jesus comes, we're told this lamb is coming to save us. I grabbed a, a picture of the lamb here, the sacrificial lamb. This is a famous painting by Francisco de Zuberan. It's called The Lamb of God. And I just realized this week it's actually a famous painting. I've, I've grabbed this off the internet like a hundred times. I thought it was just some meme, you know, AI made it or something. But it, it's actually a famous painting. It's a beautiful painting. It's simplicity. Um, he, he's the innocent sacrifice. He's the perfect sacrifice that takes our place. And it's promised again 700 years before any of this happened. So again, the mechanics of God's love is that we trust that God can solve this. We can't solve it. It's impossible. I can't get myself out of this hole. I can't pull myself out of this mess. And so what we need to do when we see this, when we see the mechanics of God's love, again, that's just the whole New Testament drawing on this reality, 
we say, what are, the, what are the other things that I've been trying, right? Like, what's, what's the truck I've been driving to try to pull me out of this mess? I need to cut that chain and say, Jesus, you're the only one that can help me. But we need to confess our, our alternate forms of salvation. It's only Jesus, by his blood, through his resurrection. That's the only hope. And so we can think that just making more money and we just got to run faster and run harder and then we can pull ourselves out of this mess and that's what's going to do it. Or we can think it's, it's in relationships or it's just pleasure. If we just unplug from the pain of this world, just feel more pleasure, then, then we'll get there, then we'll be okay. And he says, no, it's, it's Jesus. It's what he's done for us on the cross. That's, that's the mechanics of how this works. That's how God shows us love. That's how we actually know what love is. It says in First John, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for us. In 1 Corinthians, we're told that the Jews and the Greeks struggled uh, with the foolishness of the cross. It says, the Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. That's your only hope, Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Confess your alternate forms of salvation. Are you putting all your hope in, in wisdom of the world, power of the world? He says, no, give up on that and trust in Christ crucified. That's our only hope. Okay, the third point is the victory of God's love, the victory of God's love. These last few verses, we'll see um, that again, it's not just a nice idea, but, but Jesus actually accomplished something. He actually did it. In the New Testament, this is uh, talked about as the resurrection itself. And the preaching of the apostles, it's always like, okay, but he rose from the dead. So we know he did it. He, he won, right? Look at the scoreboard, the resurrection of Jesus. So here it's in Isaiah 53, 10, 11, and 12, the victory of God's love. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was, uh, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Just verse 10 has so much, but just going back to the theme of exile, uh, this can be comforting to us in our grief and in our pain when we're going through hard things. The greatest evil, the greatest pain that was ever endured was Jesus Christ being crucified in our place. So there's the greatest evil that's ever been perpetrated in the history of mankind. And God used that for our good. This doesn't make evil things good. We don't want to mix up our language, right? When you're going through an evil thing, you cry out to God, God, stop this evil. It is evil. And yet we see what he did with Jesus. God can turn evil for good. That's what Romans 8 proclaims to us. And that's what this is saying to us about Jesus. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking about the resurrection. He was crushed. He was absolutely destroyed. And when that happened, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, then he shall see his offspring. Then he shall prolong his days. Then the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's prospering on the other side of this crushing. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Accounted righteous, uh, that's that accounting language that shows up a lot of times in the Bible, right? 
that we spent everything, we, we blew it. We don't have anything left in our bank account. We have debt. Jesus pays our debt, and he doesn't just pay it and get us back to zero. Then he fills it, and we've got the inheritance of the king of the universe. We're accounted righteous in Christ. We're not just forgiven, no longer sinners. We're actually seen as righteous. Do you see that? It's not just net zero. It's a positive. He loves us. He delights in you in Christ. So again, he will... Wrong page. Uh, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, to be declared just, justified, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. This is war language. This is the the conquering language. He's going to divide the spoils of war. He's going to conquer. He's going to defeat our enemies. Again, verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So I want to connect the dots for you here. This victory, this war that he's accomplished and applied to our life allows him to divide the spoil, conquer our enemies. That's the same victory that makes him the perfect intercessor for us, that makes him the one we can trust when everything's falling apart, that we can run to. He's interceding for us. We've got the the war language here. Jesus won the war by his death and resurrection. The way Ephesians talks about us, he led his captives in his train, right? It's like he's pulling us all out of a cave. I feel like there's like a, a movie every year about people being rescued from a cave somewhere, right? Isn't that happening? It's like a trend. I wanted to find a picture that I haven't seen any of the cave movies, but it's like this theme, right? You're captured. How are they going to get you out? He rescues you, right? That language shows up in Ephesians. It's like you're under the influence of this enemy, and he's leading them out. In 1981, there were some hostages released that had been taken by Iran. I grabbed a picture of that when the hostages were released. It was great celebration. They'd been held hostage for over a year, and then they were set free. That's the language of the New Testament and the language here of Isaiah. He's dividing the spoils of war. He's conquered our enemies. He's leading us out of our captivity. He has actually accomplished what he set out to do. Not just our captivity in a physical exile, but our captivity to sin and death. Something even worse. So in Colossians, it describes this as the cross that accomplishes this freedom. In Colossians 2, it says, You were dead in your sins, and God made you alive together with Jesus, having forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's like, Jesus did this. He rescued you. He canceled your debt. He set you free. You were dead. Now you're alive. He's combining all these images together. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's a victory parade. Jesus defeated our enemies. That's what we're promised in the New Testament. That's what we look forward to in the future, that day where we'll be able to say what 1 Corinthians 15 says, oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? And so because of this, because he actually won, right? He's not just like this sweet hippie that loves us and means well. 
Like, he's also the warrior that defeated our enemies. He's actually accomplished this victorious battle. And so because of that, we can go to him. We can trust him. He's our, he's our intercessor. He's our advocate. First John 2 says, little children, I don't want you to sin. Don't sin, right? Major theme in the Bible. Hey, stop sinning, okay? He says, but if you do, I, I would make the translation, and when you do, right? I don't want you to sin, but when you do, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Right before this, it says there's basically two ways to live. There's the way of the liar who says, I have no sin. And there's the way of the honest one that runs to Jesus and says, Jesus, take my sin. He is faithful and just to cleanse us, forgive us. That's what he does. So again, 1 John 2, 1. Hey, little children, don't sin. But if you do, when you do, remember you've got an advocate. He's accomplished the victory. You've got this great general that's defeated sin and death that's triumphed over all your enemies. Run to him. He'll take care of you. I remember one time uh, a bully scaring me on the playground. And I had a big brother that was eight years older than me in the apartment. And so I could have tried to just handle it on my own. I was like, ah, oh yes, I have this big teenage brother. I'll go get him, right? And I went and got him. And then my problems were over. When you're struggling with sin, remember you've You've got the mighty warrior who has conquered sin and death for you. Run to him, your advocate with the Father. Romans 8 describes it this way. Because of the victory he's purchased, we remember he's always interceding for us. And it uses the language of the Spirit here. Uh, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, he's mingling together here. Even these terrible things, even this exile, even this horrible thing you never wanted to go through, we know that those things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And when you don't know how to pray in that situation because it feels so terrible, know that even the Spirit himself intercedes for you with groanings too deep for words. Y'all, I can, I can testify to this personally. I am a professional prayer. It's holiday season. I'm a professional. I get, I get asked to pray everywhere I go. I'm going to get to go to a military event in a week or two and get to be the official prayer, right? But I still, in my pain and in my grief and in my sadness and in my sin, sometimes I don't know how to pray. And yet I know I have this advocate I know I have an intercessor. I know I have a God who is there for me, who loves me. And the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. You can run to him because he's accomplished the victory. Because redemption has been accomplished and applied to our life. So we we run to him. We persevere in this life, in this exile, knowing he's accomplished the decisive victory. And he's there for us. And we keep going back. We keep going back. We keep going back because of his love. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Love will come. That's, that's the big message. Love will come. Don't give up. Love will come. Don't give up. The nights are getting darker, not colder, but love will come. Love will come. The impossibility of God's love, the mechanics of God's love, the victory of God's love, all of these things that Isaiah is predicting 700 years before Christ tells us to look to Jesus if we want to really define what love is. One of my favorite books on the subject is a book called Gentle and Lowly. 
that just encourages us chapter after chapter to, to run back to Jesus. And he, he talked a lot in that book about a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin really fixated on this tension between God's justice, a God who would exile people for their sin, and yet his love, a God who would save those same people. And Thomas Goodwin says it this way. He says, Though God is just, yet his mercy and love may be in some respect more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God doth shew. What he means to say is God does show, but he's, he's old, so he says it strangely. <laughs> he's saying that, that God's love is somehow more natural to him than his acts of justice. And that's not just a random thing a Puritan is saying, but he has scripture for this. Jeremiah 32, 41 says, he rejoices in doing good for his people with his whole heart and soul. Lamentations 3, 33 says, he does not punish from his heart. That's not his heart. And then Isaiah 28, 21, again, context our book here, Isaiah, the one we're studying. Isaiah 28, 21 says that judgment is his strange work, his alien work. But justice people, I know you're squirming. Justice people, God does perfectly carry out justice. God's love and justice are perfectly balanced. But, but what the scriptures are telling us here is that his deepest and truest heart is to show us love. Isn't that amazing? And we see that lived out in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Prophesied here for us 700 years before that first Christmas. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us, and you know, we confess, we struggle to believe that. Help us to believe it. Help us to run in the freedom of your love, trusting you, obeying you because you're good, running to you with prayer when we're struggling. God, help us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.